I am honored to introduce this afternoon's first speaker. As a Wisconsinite, I could not be more proud to have the next speaker be my United States Senator. He has, since 2010, been a crusader for good government, lower taxes, and has an incredible ability to slay the left's golden calves. Whether it is COVID, uh, whether it is, it, it is the, the consensus, as it were, on COVID, or whether it is um, Russian in, uh, hoaxes, Senator Johnson has done yeoman's work on shining a white hot light on the misinformation, as it were, from the left. In 2010, when he was first elected, he beat United States Senator Russ Feingold. And just this past fall, he was reelected to his third term. And as a Wisconsinite myself, I am looking forward to the next six years Please welcome to the stage, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, th thank you for that uh, very kind introduction and warm welcome. Um, I want to thank the Heartland Institute for inviting me to Jim and James and Steve, a fellow Wisconsinite. Uh, I looked at your program, and it's always a little intimidating when you're giving speeches to these types of uh, seminars, and you've got a, a whole long list of eminently qualified experts in fields that you're not expert in. And so I, I almost kind of scratched my head going, okay, so no, what, what am I going to talk about? Uh, I'll have to thread that needle, um, but what I'll try and do is I'll try and provide you my perspective on the, the topic of, of climate change. I have noticed, again, going through your uh, presentations here, you're gonna be, you've already talked about or you've had presentations on climate change, you've had presentations on ESG, uh, you've had presentations and discussions on the Great Reset. So just by going through that, I can already tell that you, you know what's up here. This isn't about climate. This isn't about saving the planet. This is about the left utilizing climate change to create a state of fear to control our lives. That's what this is all about. Because you have to probably realize as a U.S. Senator, I'm probably the most ridiculed United States Senator, particularly on climate. Uh, when I first ran in 2010, uh, I was asked about climate change, and you know, I actually read books. Um, and they, they, you know, they were asking me, do you believe in man-made climate change? And listen, I realize mankind definitely affects and impacts the environment. To the extent we might impact climate change, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical. I, I made the statement at that point in time, I think it's probably more uh, whatever is happening to climate due to solar activity, sunspots. And so I became dubbed Senator Sunspot, and it's not, it's not a term of endearment, trust me. It's a term of derision. But again, I, I've got a brain. Uh, I'm naturally skeptical. And by the way, 
To me, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Anytime I hear people talking about settled science. To, to me, if, if there's one word that would define science, it would be skepticism. Right? T taking a look at the world and go, why is that like that? Uh, is that really the explanation? So, so skepticism is extremely important, but you know, I, I'm a skeptic because of all of the past predictions of all the Malthusians, all the, all the do doomsayers, right? You know, I won't go through all of them because the list is long. You know, what, what, what city is going to be covered up by the oceans? You know, when are we going to lose the polar ice caps? I mean, all these predictions. Now, I'm old enough to have been told that we had to worry about global cooling. Then there's global warming. And then with that, let's call it climate change because that's, you know, a, a, a grab bag of everything. So, I mean, just those wrong predictions ought to open people's minds to the possibility that maybe these people are wrong. And, of course, I think we all believe that they, they are wrong. But, but there's a couple of data points that, that I've really honed in on that, that I don't think that the wider public generally is aware. I'll start with the Vostok ice core sample. You know, 400-some thousand years of, of history there in terms of temperature. Uh, I think four can't really call them cycles, but peak to trough temperature variations close to 23 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, the Greenland ice core sample, about 20,000 years, I think 6.7 degrees temperature variation. And, and when you see these hockey sticks, and all, you know, again, you can do almost anything with a chart and a graph and statistics. Uh, you know, these little hockey sticks, I mean, out of a chart in terms of those temperature variations, we're talking about an itty bitty little speck there it's not something I'm going to lose sleep over. So, so I, I basically tell the public, I, I'm not a climate change denier. I'm just not a climate change alarmist. Okay? Uh, one that it always surprises people, I'll ask you, whether you, you, know, you, you probably do know the answer, but anybody know since that last glaciation period, about 20,000 years ago, do you know how much the sea level has increased in the Bay of San Francisco? Just let me think about it. Don't shout it out loud because you don't want to embarrass yourself. It's not a couple inches, not a couple feet, it's 390 feet. So again, ju just on those three data points, you know, as human beings, you know, there, there were men and women back then, but not enough you know, building campfires to create global warming to cause half-mile-thick glaciers to retreat from my state. So again, just common sense tells you that as, as, as mankind, I don't think there's much we can do to hold back the tides. Climate has always changed, it always will, and what we ought to do is adapt. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big adherent to Bjorn Lombard, who, by the way, does believe in man-made climate change. He just takes a very sensible approach, recognizing that we have limited resources, and so with limited resources, the last thing you really ought to do is spend money on something that you can't do anything about. So he sh says we shouldn't spend a dime on climate change, and I agree with that. And I have to admit, just so you understand my background, I'm an accountant. Ran a manufacturing plant for about 30 years, never involved in politics till, till Obamacare, and we were $14 trillion in debt. But one, one of the first events I, I attended, thinking about running for Senate, this was March in 2010. There was an a event put on by... Um, Americans for Prosperity in, in Wisconsin Dells. And one of the speakers was Lord Moncton. And, and you understand what Lord Moncton said. 
Um, I, I've repeated that, but not out loud. I, I did this in front of a, a group of Republican women in Wisconsin, and somebody asked me about climate change. I said, well, I kind of take the Lord Moncton approach. I think climate change is... And did, did the exact same thing there. They, they recorded it, and CNN read my lips, and that was a news story for a couple of weeks. So anyway, you, you understand my skepticism here, right? Now, that'd all be well and good. If, if one side was just freaked out about this, they're all alarmed about climate change. There's a group of us saying, don't worry about it, we'll adapt, we'll, we'll get by. But it's way more than that because the group that is alarmed by climate change has an awful lot of power. And they're using that power in very destructive ways. I think one of the, you know, Bjorn Lombard's writing for the Wall Street Journal, one of his earlier columns, they had a picture of a, of a little boy living in squalor. And the headline was, this young man doesn't need a solar panel. You know, he, he needs electricity. You know, he, he needs a better life. So, you know, unfortunately, you've got the other side that continue to proclaim that climate change is the greatest threat to mankind or to America. I think the theme of my talk here today is that that's not true. The greatest threat, at least to America, and I would say also to mankind, is radical leftism. And there's so many ways to prove that, but one of my starting points would be just to have you contemplate Venezuela, an oil-rich nation, a highly successful nation, probably the most prosperous nation in South America until Hugo Chavez. And what you all need to understand is that Venezuelans it wasn't some outside force. It was the citizens of Venezuela that voted themselves into poverty. And we are going down that exact same path today, and that is what we're trying to turn away from. You know, I, I can understand you know, leftism, socialism, communism has been around for more than a century now. And I, and I can understand back in the, in, the, in the 30s, during the Depression, uh, there is no perfect economic model. And let's face it, uh, capitalism right there looked, looked like it had taken a pretty bad turn. And so I can understand people back then embracing things like Marxism, saying we've got to try something else, okay? And of course, you know, Marx, Marxism, socialism all sounds so good, right? You know, equal opportunity, equality for all. The problem is it didn't work. And we've seen example after example, the Soviet Union, Union China, uh, Cuba, Venezuela. You know, we've seen communism, socialism turn into totalitarianism. We've seen the deaths of tens of millions of people as a result of it. So again, having a brain, looking at evidence, you take a look at that and go, well, okay, I understand why somebody tried it, but let's not keep, continue trying it because it will never work. And one of the advantages of being a United States senator is you, you do meet some really Interesting people, very capable people, brilliant people. One of those individuals at a similar type of event like this was uh, David Horowitz. I was invited to speak at his event. I got to spend a couple hours with him. And uh, if you haven't read about David Horowitz or things he's written, please do. He's a brilliant mind. But his parents were communists. He was a communist. Until his group of fellow travelers murdered somebody, then he saw the light. 
And so again, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of asking him this question. So obviously socialism doesn't work. Communism doesn't work. What, what are these people thinking? You know, I know they're not stupid. What, what's, what's the deal here? He said, yeah, now, Ron, when they look at Stalin or Castro or Chavez or Maduro, they're thinking in their own minds, because they're utopians. They're thinking in their own minds, well, I'm just a lot smarter than the people who have tried this in the past. I'm, I'm a better angel. So give me all this power, and again, literally, we'll create heaven on earth. That's, that's their mindset. We need to understand that about these people. So what unifies the left is power. Everything they do is that quest for control over lives. I mean, as conservatives, we don't get that. Now, I, I think it's compl complicated enough running my, my own life, trying to take care of my own family, improving their life. But that's, that's not the mindset of a leftist. Now, all of us, I, I, I did appreciate Governor Sanders' response to the State of the Union when she was talking about, this is just crazy what they're doing, right? I mean, that's, I mean you're here, you're, you're thinking all these things are, are just crazy. But when they're in power, they implement this craziness. I mean, I, I call this the list of horribles, you know, Biden, who Obama's defense secretary said is wrong on every major foreign policy decision the last 40 years, and now he's president. So he has the, the embarrassing and dangerous surrender in Afghanistan, which has emboldened Putin and Xi, the Ayatollahs, uh, the madman in North Korea. It, very dangerous when you exhibit the kind of weakness. I mean, it's a disaster. I mean, leftism doesn't work. Uh, take a look at what they are doing on the border. You know, obviously, if you're going to have a sovereign nation, you need a secure border. And they're completely ignoring the human depredations, the human trafficking, the sex trafficking, the drug trafficking of an open border, but they maintain an open border. You know, it's, it's not real difficult to understand what causes inflation. It's too many dollars chasing too few goods. So what have they been doing? They've been printing dollars, trillions of them. Then they wonder why they ha we have inflation? Look at crime. I mean... Who, who would think that the solution to crime is to defund police or, or basically say that we're not going to prosecute anybody who's shoplifting over, you know, unless it's over a thousand bucks? You get a lot, a lot of people shoplifting $900 worth. So again, I mean, again, we're, we're conservatives. We look at this as crazy, but they have power. And that's what's so destructive about what they've tried to do with climate change, but... I think another one of my main points here is climate change was just a test case. It's just one example. What I want to spend a little time on is talking about what they really looked at as an enormous once-in-a-generation opportunity, and that's the pandemic. Okay? Have you noticed that the response to the pandemic was a miserable failure? Have you noticed that? I mean, by their own data... And by the way, they're, they're not being honest, they're not being transparent, so you got to take this with a grain of salt, but by their own data, over a million Americans lost their lives due to COVID. Over six million people globally. The shutdowns didn't work. The masks didn't work. I think the most egregious offense in this whole process is not only did they not 
treat COVID patients, they sabotaged early treatment. And by the way, there was a... I always call it a cornucopia, it's not quite that many. There were many drugs that could have been used off-label as well as on-label, cheap, safe, effective, generic drugs. They just weren't allowed. I mean, what other medical condition don't we say that early diagnosis allows for early treatment which produces better outcomes? So we always try and do, I mean, we try and detect cancer. We, we do try and do that across the board, but not for COVID. With COVID, we said, we're going to spend tens of billions of dollars on tests to try and flatten the curve, which of course it didn't do, but we didn't stop testing. And it didn't work, but it didn't stop it. But it was all about flattening the curve so that they could control our economy. So it was completely crazy what they did. They're not being held accountable for it. And I think one of the things that I've really gotten involved in is not only pushing early treatment, but because, because of my advocacy for early treatment, because I was opposed to the shutdowns very early on, I was very early connected with a global network of eminently qualified doctors and medical researchers. Now, I'm not a doctor, but have I gotten a medical education over the last couple of years? These are individuals, again, early on, where I became so skeptical early on is when these doctors coming out of New York, they, they were doing videos of themselves and they were posting them and said, this is not what you normally see with normal type of pneumonia. This is something different. And they were trying different things and they were, those videos were being pulled off the internet. A couple of doctors in California talking about they, they were treating a lot of patients who think there's, COVID is a lot more prevalent. That video was taken down. The doctors that I had testified before my committees have been vilified. They've been terminated. They've been sued. They've been, you know, they've had their hospital privileges revoked. You know, why is that? So, I mean, all those things didn't make sense to me. I, I still, I cannot tell you exactly what has happened here. But it's made me highly skeptical. But because I was connected to that group of doctors... I was fortunate to talk to, and I want to talk about one in particular, a gentleman called Dr. Michael Yeadon. Have you heard? Okay. So he, just so those who haven't, 30 years he worked for Pfizer. His last assignment was Senior Vice President of Research. His specialty is in toxicology, or toxicology. He had left Pfizer and started his own biologic companies, did things in partnership with Pfizer for 10 years. So again, he, he wasn't anti-Pfizer, he wasn't anti-vaccine, he's not anti-pharmaceutical. But when he heard what his colleagues were designing in terms of this vaccine, he couldn't believe it. He's literally beside himself. One of my first conversations with him, he said, Ron, you know, I know what they know. I, I was educated with these people the health ministers, the, the people in these research centers, the heads of the pharma companies, I, I know what they know. I know they're lying to us. I know they know they're lying to us. He said, Ron, there's a long list of ingredients we don't put in vaccines because they're toxic to the body. 
And so when he found out what the vaccine does, it actually causes the body to produce its own toxin, the spike protein. That's, that's why COVID is, is a nasty disease. It's that spike protein. That's the, that's the toxic part of the, of the virus. He simply couldn't believe it. So he didn't believe it. But he did his research, and he realized, no, that's exactly what they were going to do. And so Michael Eden published, and go on the internet and just go take the lies of COVID. He's got a long list. But from my standpoint, some of the more important ones, remember they told us it was all going to be staying right in the, the old arm muscle there, right? You know, produce a little spike protein there, your body's going to produce antibodies, then you're, you're, it's going to be safe, it's going to be effective, right? They knew that wouldn't happen, by the way. Because they packaged it in something called a lipid nanoparticle, which is designed to permeate difficult-to-permeate barriers, like the blood-brain barrier, like the placental barrier. So, by the way, they did a biodistribution test study on that lipid nanoparticle. They didn't release it to the public. Japanese regulars had FOIA requests to get that information, but then now we have it. The lipid nanoparticle distributed all over the body. It concentrates in things like the, the, the ovaries and the testes. It can penetrate the blood-brain barrier. So they knew that ahead of time, and yet they lied to us and said it was going to stay in the arm muscle. It's also important to know what the, and I apologize, I, I don't mean to scare people because I know a lot of people here are probably vaccinated. But I'm talking about this because I'm trying to warn people. You need to have informed consent. But the messenger RNA, what it does is not only does it enter the cell and ask that cell to produce a toxin to, to the body, which, by the way, then the body attacks, which is why you get myocarditis, why you get inflammation. But it also juices the mitochondria, the engine of the cell. Gee, what might happen if that lands on a cancer cell? So I won't go any further, but I, I knew this talking to Michael Yeadon back in October, November of 2020 before the vaccine never got its EUA, its emergency use authorization. And so I tried in, in my limited way, because I'm not a doctor, I tried to warn the American public to just be cautious. I tried to warn government officials. I mean, Gert Vandenbosch was warning the public, warned the WHO, the four-page letter, do not mass vaccinate into the midst of a, in, in midst of a pandemic. You'll drive variants. You could have antibody-dependent enhancements. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we didn't know. And maybe of all that I've learned in this process with these doctors and medical research is I've learned how little we do know. I mean, they're, they're, it's amazing what we know. It really is. It's amazing how far science has progressed, whether it's in climate or meteorology or medical science. It's amazing what we know today. But I would argue we still know a lot less, a whole lot less. We, we don't know versus what we do. So as human beings, as government officials, we got to have a little modesty. We're making decisions and we're taking people's freedom away. And that's, that's really kind of my main points. The main reason I ran, freedom. It has been depressing to see how many of our fellow citizens have just willingly and are willingly giving up their freedom for this false sense of security, whether it's on climate change, 
focused on the pandemic. One thing when I talk to young people, it's, it's, it's my main message is please, please understand how crucial freedom is to this experiment we call America. Understand how crucial freedom is to your ability to live a good life, to embrace and exercise those inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We, we just simply aren't aware of that to the extent we should. So I, I did want to take some questions. I think I have some time, or some, I think I have some time here. But, but let me end on this note. Um, one of the reasons I ran again, the primary reason, is because nobody else was advocating for the vaccine injured. So I'm talking to you about this, okay? On VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, the last numbers I have, 34,478 deaths worldwide reported on VAERS. Over 1.5 million adverse events. Now, two problems with VAERS, it doesn't prove causation, but it generally dramatically understates the number of adverse events. So you have to multiply that by some factor. There have been studies only 1% are reported, 10%. We don't know. In terms of causation of the 34,478 deaths, 8,685 or 25%, a quarter of them, are occurring on either the day of vaccination or the first or second day after. Now, it may not prove causation, but it'd be something I'm concerned about. I can't quite explain why our federal health officials, why they're not concerned about it. But they better get concerned about it. And this is, again, one of the main reasons I'm doing it. I've, I've advocated for the vaccine injured. I've, I've, I've tried to comfort a father who lost his only son within days. There's no denying it. We need to recognize it. And what's so tragic about it is until the, the establishment, the medical establishment does recognize vaccine injuries, until our federal health agencies do, these people can't get help. So, so many of the neurological issues are occurring with women. So you know what doctors do when a woman comes in with neurological problems? You know, inner vibrations. So it's all in your head. Some of them actually try and commit them. There's an unfortunate level of suicide within these women and men. So th these people need help. It's, it's up to us to try and help them. So we, we need to recognize, again, talk about the Great Reset, I won't go into a great deal, but the WHO is obviously captured by the Chinese Communist government. You know, three years ago, if you would have talked to me about Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, I would have said, well, you know, why don't you go over there in the corner and talk to those folks over there? No more. These guys are, I mean, it's all on videotape. You're going to hack in the human body. Um, you know, just have to have some kind of, you know, maybe a pandemic will allow us to have a universal vaccination program. They've laid it all out there. They, they, they've done the simulations. It's pretty obvious. We need to recognize that what they're saying is what they believe and what they're going to implement. And the censorship has been profound. The Trusted News Network. Again, it's an assault on our freedom. Driving over here, I was listening to Jordan Peterson. Whether you're familiar with him or not, I uh, recommend listening to some of the things. He, he came to our Senate lunch. They never get a great deal of time to talk, but, but one of the things that really resonated with me, he said, you know, as conservatives, we're awful 
at defending our values. But then he, he granted us immediate absolution. He said, it's because we never thought we'd have to. Who, whoever thought, for example, the solution to crime was defunding police or, or not arresting people shoplifting. Whoever thought we'd have to defend the basic benefit of a nuclear family? Whoever thought we would have to push back on educators who want to give our children gender-blocking drugs without telling their parents? Whoever thought these children's hospitals, children's hospitals that saved my daughter's life as an infant, with open-heart surgery, we baffled the upper chamber of her heart. Her heart operates backwards today. She's four years old, has two children. Whoever thought those children's hospitals would be mutilating minors? Again, we all think this is crazy. The left doesn't. And the left is backed up because the masterstroke of the left was taking over our university systems, right? Back in the 60s during the Vietnam War protests, I remember it well. So when you control our university systems, you control education departments, our journalism schools, our law schools, you control our culture. And it's all coming to fruition. So they can control the narrative. On, on COVID, I call it the COVID cartel. The administration, the health agencies who've been thoroughly captured by Big Pharma, and Big Pharma has also captured the media through their ads and big tech social media giants. There it is. There's the COVID cartel. They're the ones that sabotage early treatment, causing hundreds of thousands of deaths that didn't have to occur. These people can't, they will never admit they're wrong. And the body count is so high, they can't afford to be proven wrong. But here's the problem. They have the power to make it very difficult to prove them wrong. So what we are all engaged in, in our own individual ways, is a fight for freedom. It's, it's the essential ingredient in this experiment that is so rare and precious in human history. It's a fight for freedom. It's not somebody else's fight, it's our fight. It is a fight that we absolutely must win. So thank you, Heartland. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being engaged in that fight. Never give up. Keep on fighting. We got time for questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. So we do have time for questions, so. We, we do, we have, we have about 15 minutes for questions, so you know how long the Inquisition will be, so that's good to know going in. Uh, if you have a question, uh, please raise your hand, a microphone will find you. We request that you stand up, you identify yourself so that the Senator knows to whom he is speaking, and uh, we will start right here. Welcome, Senator Johnson, um, ter terrific speech. Uh, my name is Joe Armanderas, um, and there's a lot of scientists in this room. Um, there's also a couple of political scientists, I think, in this room. And so my question for you has, really has to do with the political science of the day. I was reading in Politico this morning that you attended the, um, the Ron DeSantis event in Palm Beach last night. Um, and I know that, you're, that you said that you're not going to make an endorsement, um, but I'm wondering if you would answer a hypothetical question for me. <laughs> 
Probably not, but go ahead. <laughs> Which is, uh, would you ever consider joining a presidential ticket? Because I'll tell you, Senator, in all, in all seriousness, there aren't many Republicans who talk like you do. I mean, there just really isn't. So, so, so let, let, let me answer it this way, okay? Um, I think it's pretty widely known that I did not want to run for a third term. I mean, I think Lauren will, will definitely uh, back me up on this. this the, the, the level of dysfunction in Washington, D.C. is just profound. And for an accountant, for a business guy, I mean, it, it drives you nuts, okay? Uh, I'm not asking you to feel sorry for me. It's, it's, it's not boring, but it's enormously frustrating. Um, but because of that, my, my attitude is different than, I would say, most members. What do you think the, is the number one motivating factor of most members of Congress? It's not mine. I'd rather not be there. And so when, when you have that attitude, I mean, it doesn't, you know, you're, you're going to speak the truth as, as best as you can articulate it. Um, but no, I, I, have, I have no further aspirations. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody wanting to be president, quite honestly. Um, you know, I, I was telling uh, James and Jim earlier, I've got one portrait in my office of George Washington primarily because he didn't want to be president. And as a result of that, he set the unbelievable example when they would have crowned him king to say, no, I'm going to serve for two terms, and then we're going to have a peaceful transition. And that set the stage for 240-plus years of a marvel that we call America. So, but, but I appreciate the comment. Senator Johnson, uh, Tom Moser from the free state of Texas. Uh, the question is, the Democrats have as a nucleus of their campaign against carbon dioxide, which is against fossil fuels, which is against cheap energy, which is against the economy. So my question is, why doesn't the Republicans take on that challenge and say climate change is false, it's not true, and carbon dioxide is good? So, yeah. I I say those things. I mean, personally, I think carbon dioxide is plant food, isn't it? So if you, if you like a green planet, you've got to like carbon dioxide. Uh, what does happen is, and I, I hear that question all the time, why don't you guys say, why don't you make this point? I mean, the truth is we do. But remember what we're up against. We're up against an education system that's indoctrinating our children. We're up against the news media that is a bunch of radical leftists. Okay, we've we, we don't we've got talk radio, we've got a couple publications, we've got some brilliant thinkers that, that write columns, that type of thing. But, again, the, the bulk of the media, the bulk of the education system are leftists. And so uh, the, the things they cover about me is what they can ridicule me about. Okay? So they, they don't, if I say something brilliant, they're not going to cover that. If, if I'm going to say something that makes a really good point that's going to nuke their viewpoint, they're not going to cover that. So we, we always get criticized for just watching Fox News or whatever. Well, what else are we going to watch? So CNN, MSNBC, I mean, that's too painful. Um, but, but no, listen, we can always be better communicators. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, I've been pushing since I got there because I'm a business guy as a strategy. Um, par, par, part of the problem is we, we, don't, we don't have the most effective leadership. We just don't. Senator Johnson, Terry Hill, I've been to a number of uh, hearings you've had.
held on the grid. Would you comment on the vulnerability of the U.S. grid? Thanks. Um, highly vulnerable from my standpoint. Uh, one of my enormous frustrations is when I became chairman of Homeland Security, I, I was visited by, I'm going to get, is it Cooperman? Hank Cooperman? Whatever. Uh, anyway, the, the two, two gentlemen brought me a book about EMP. I'd heard of it, but I wasn't overly concerned about it. I just didn't understand the, the full uh, threat it, it represents. So once I was educated on it, I started holding hearings. It took me a couple of years just to pass a bill because the, the, the argument was, do we need a strategy or do we need a plan to deal with EMP? Again, that's how, that's how nonsense this is. Um, we just passed a trillion dollar plus infrastructure bill. Uh, I was talking during that process, tried to offer an amendment to set some dollars aside to buy these large power transformers. Which, by the way, if we get hit by an EMP, which is high altitude nuclear blast, okay, or even a GMD, we, we, we missed one by a couple days in 2012. The Carrington effect fried telephone wire, telegraph wires. Can you imagine what a really massive solar storm a GMP uh, would do to, or GMD would do to uh, our electronics right, right now? So one of the things to do is fry these large power transformers, which we can't replace. Not anytime soon, and if you shut down all of our power, you won't be able to. That's where you get these, uh, these books talking about 99% of the population be wiped out in a, in a massive EMP. So the solution would be, well, let's buy some of those things, put them on site, so if something like that were happening, we could hook it into our electrical grid. You, th you think we did any? Now, now, part of the problem is I cannot get, because I'm not an electrical engineer, I've never been able to get from the people that are scaring me about this, well, what's the solution? You know, I've, we've talked about capacitors. We've talked about these large power transformers. Well, how many do we need? Where, where do we need to locate them? So nobody's taking it seriously. Drives me nuts. But no, I think our electrical grid is highly vulnerable. We're making it more vulnerable with all the green energy crap. I was just talking to somebody from, I was talking to somebody from Texas, about 50%. That's like Chip Roy was telling me, 50% of the Texas electrical grid is going to be powered by wind and solar. And this is after they just, they literally missed a catastrophic event by a few hours or whatever. They were able to get it back online before it would have been offline for a lot longer because of very cold temperature. Again, this, this, it's insane what we're doing. It's insane that you have somebody actually win the presidency, say that he's going to end fossil fuels. What do you say, in 10 years? How are you going to do that without completely impoverishing our country? Again, this is lunacy. It's crazy. But the mainstream media makes it all normal. And so at least, you know, around half, if not more, of our fellow citizens are buying this crap. It's a real problem. That's why I say it's up to us. It's got to be person to person. We've got to educate everybody we know about the lunacy and the destructiveness of the radical left. We've been biased on this side of the room. Anyone over here? So Scott has something to do over here with this microphone? Anyone? Oh, okay. Great. <laughs> I'll take one right here. Senator Johnson, I'm Dr. Roy Eapen. I'm, I'm a doctor from Canada. And one of the things that I've noticed during this whole pandemic in your country and mine is the emergency powers used by the, the federal and state and provincial governments. Is there any way to limit that? 
so that you need a two-thirds supermajority to, to in, invoke emergency powers, because without those emergency powers, we would have been in a much better shape than we are. There's a way, sure, are we going to get it done? There's, there's a very thoughtful uh, presentation put together by somebody named Catherine Watt. She's a legal assistant, but she's just gone into the history of all the laws that were passed that have just layered one on top of each other that have given the president, and particularly the secretary of HHS, all this enormous authority. You know, the vaccines, they weren't purchased through the normal route, through HHS. It was purchased through Defense Department under an other uh, transactional authority. So they were, able to, they were able to legally bypass all this stuff. Of course, there's no uh, legal liability either. Um, so there's a way, but the only way we're going to be able to change this is through exposure to the truth and get more and more of our fellow citizens understanding what's happened. You know, somebody earlier said there are a lot of scientists in the room. Um, one of the enormous or tragedies of, of the whole pandemic was just the corruption of medical journals, you know, with the surgosphere, the, the, the studies had to be retracted out of New England, New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. Um, Fauci, federal grants, advertising, all that has corrupted the media, it's corrupted our medical research. I would say scientific, climate change has corrupted scientific research, right? It's like when, when, you're, when you're dependent, when you're dependent on a grant from the government and you know the government wants a certain answer, you're going to give them that answer. That's just obvious. It's obvious. So we've got to completely relook at these agencies, at this you know, federal largesse, federal grant making. I don't think the FDA and the CDC are really recoverable. I think you've got to start those things from the ground up. Give, give the FDA. Give the FDA the authority to ensure safety. You know, be monitoring the, the manufacture of drugs. They're not doing that. Most of these drugs coming in from overseas, they're not over there in those plants. Uh, you know, I've written a letter on the lot-to-lot -lot variation. You know, 80% of the adverse events of the serious ones came from 1% of the lots. I come from manufacturing. That is called a process out of control. And we don't even talk about it. I, I got no response other than the FDA say, oh, we didn't see that it's out of control. The CDC is an organization that should be tasked, is tasked with gathering information so they can disseminate it to doctors and the public. They didn't gather the information we needed, or if they did, they're not giving it to us in an honest, transparent way. So again, there's corruption in the agencies, there's corruption, again, the capture by Big Pharma. Uh, there's a lot to fix right now, but it all starts with uncovering and then exposing the truth, which is not easy to do. Quick little example. You're, you're probably familiar with the emails between Fauci and, okay, and, and his, his basic cover-up of, of his funding of the Wuhan lab. Um, there are 4,000 pages. My staff looked at them. Now, they're all heavily redacted. FOIA requests, the agencies can really redact. So to the point of absurdity, where you get pages that are completely black. So we, got, we went in there, and we identified 400 pages that we wanted to look at without redactions. So we have to fight with HHS. Fortunately, my chairman... Uh, John Ossoff agreed with us to look at that. Now, they didn't give us the pages. They allowed us to read 50 pages at a time in a reading room. Take notes, no copies, right? So we've gone through the 400 pages. We've gone through 350 of them. We're down to the last 50. They will not give us those last 50 pages unredacted. So you know where all the incriminating evidence is. And I'm hoping the House, Lauren, make sure the House 
subpoenas those 50 pages first, okay? Senator, we appreciate you being a very forthright conservative voice in a very competitive state like Wisconsin. My question is this, uh, with the Republicans being in a minority in the Senate and with the Biden having another two years or the Democratic administration having another two years in the White House, is there any way we're going to be able to move the ball forward on greater energy exploration or is this thing on the shelf till 2025? You know, one of our big problems is Congress has will, has will, yeah. I could just end right there, right, go home. You're right. I'm not a fan, by the way. Um, that's why I didn't want to do it. Uh, anyway, one of our big problems is, is Congress has willingly granted the executive branch its constitutional authority in so many areas. And, and so, all to you know, exonerate themselves from any kind of accountability. I mean, they'll write the bill. It's not, they're not laws anymore, they're frameworks to be, have all the blanks filled in by the executive branch. So they're given a pretty name like Patient Protection Affordable Care Act or the Inflation Reduction Act, does the exact opposite. But then they give the president all that authority. So once you, and, and by the way, presidents are happy to accept that authority. So, you know, what I'm counting on in this Congress is, and we're working with the conservatives in the House uh, and want to support them well, let's just quick talk about $31.5 trillion worth of debt, okay? Uh, in order to move the ball forward, we're not going to get the result conservatives want, but to move the ball forward, we need to pass a debt ceiling increase, and most of us have never voted for one, but we need to be willing to if, when we pass that, we attach to it fiscal controls. I laid out in a Wall Street Journal article the day after I got reelected four ideas. Preventing Government Shutdown Act, the No Default Act, or the Full Faith and Credit, the RAINS Act, RAINS and Regulation, and then one I really like is reduce the size of the federal government through attrition act. So I'll take any and all of those attached to a debt ceiling, and then I'd vote, and I'd support House members voting for that debt ceiling increase as long as we're attaching some long-term controls that give us greater leverage in these funding fights. But it's crucial as a first step that the House passes an increase in the debt ceiling with those controls, maybe, you know, I'm happy to spending cuts, whatever they can do, with 218 Republican votes. If they can't do that, it's going to be a compromise of the Democrats, and we, we won't get what, you know, we won't even take that first step in, in better fiscal controls. So again, there are ways of doing this. It's going to be a tough slog. There's nothing easy about it. Um, but so much of the blame does reside with Congresses that have just tell, tell the president, you, you take all the power and then we'll just blame you. Two more, run right here. Yeah, yeah Stan. Oh, he wants over there. Oh, okay. Yeah, Stan Goldenberg, Miami, from the moderately free state of Florida. There's no problems. But uh, uh, first of all, I encourage people, I, I avoid ever saying climate change is not real. Uh, that terminology is critical. Climate change is very real. The climate's always changing. Man-made climate change, that's the issue. But, uh, but anyway, so enjoyed your talk. I have to go back and listen to it again. But I'm especially interested in the COVID stuff. I spent a lot of time, I was maligned at work, I'm federal employee for daring to say anything that differed with CDC. Uh, guidance, uh, but I'm especially interested in you talking about making people accountable
for the kind of treatment people got. I mean, I know people personally who got very sick or died uh, because they were withheld from certain treatments. And is there any way to go after it? just seems, seems like an almost impos impossible thing. Well, again, it, this first step is exposing the truth, which is why I held in January 2020 a uh, five-hour event in the Kennedy Room in, in the Russell Building. It was called COVID-19, a second opinion. And I assembled, you know, the, the McCulloughs, the Malones, I mean, the, the Harvey Rishes, I mean, the, the eminent experts uh, that I've been in contact with for well over a year, as well as vaccine injury. We followed that up uh, on December 7th of this, of last year, with an event that I called, you know, vaccines, you know, what they are, you know, how, how they work, or, you know, you know, what they're doing in the cell, and how they can cause injury. So I think the way we get greater public awareness, and, and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, trying not to use the vaccine injured, okay? I'm, I have nothing but the most, the sincerest desire to help them, but they, they want to be used in this, this way to make the American public aware of what's happening and make them aware that the vaccines are not as safe or as effective as we were told or as we all hoped and prayed they would be, okay? So it, again, it's about getting the truth out. But when, when you take a look at you know, what the veyers are saying, when you take a look at, there's, there's a group called uh, goodsciencing.org that's tracking all the athletes that have collapsed on the field. There are over 1,600 over the last two years. I think 1,140 have died. That compares with, on average, per year, about 26 to 60 in International Olympic Committee studies on this stuff. I mean, this is not normal. I mean, we take a look at all of these actresses and actors and famous people and young people. They're just, you know, going to bed and, you know, they wake up dead. No, it's, it's, there's nothing funny about it. It's tragic. But you also notice whenever you read those accounts, they never talk about the vaccine status. They never talk about, yeah, we just got boosted two weeks ago. They just don't want to know, and we're not doing autopsies. I mean, we ought to be autopsying anybody who just dies suddenly. We need to get to the bottom of this. FAA, you know, they are ignoring the, the pilot instances. I talked to Bob Snow, American Airlines pilot, marathon runner, no heart disease. His heart stopped six minutes after landing. Now, part of the problem with myocarditis is it screws up the electrical conduction in your heart. So an adrenaline rush, the theory is, it could literally cause heart arrest. Is that what's happening? I don't know for sure. And I'll tell you who else doesn't know the federal agencies because they're not even talking to the guy. American Airlines didn't talk to him. They're ignoring the problem. But we also have the other problem too, you know, when, when the Buffalo Bills player collapsed, right? Now, again, I'm connected to these doctors. They were going to offer, and I'm connected to the players. You know, Ken Rutgers, that's how I got connected. He's former Green Bay Packer player. That's how I got connected to the vaccine injured. His wife was injured. But so we went, Dave Stock, or John Stockton, we went to the Players Association and offered them cardiologists to do screening tests. They weren't interested. They don't want to know. The play, I mean, players, they'd rather take the risk. They don't want to give up a multi-million dollar per year career. Pilots, they don't want to be grounded. They've got to provide for the families. So it's got to be the FAA, and of course, they're in a state of denial. I would say when it comes to the pandemic, our biggest roadblock is just the basic and very understandable human tendency. Nobody, nobody wants to admit they're wrong. People who are vaccinated, they don't want to believe that they were maybe wrong to do it. 
They don't want to believe that maybe there's a ticking time bomb there. By the way, I'm hoping and praying. There's, I've, I've got two kids got the vaccine. They wouldn't, wouldn't listen to me. I'm hoping the body clears it out and the, the people who are vaccine injured are the unfortunate few. I'm hoping and praying that's true. But we can't, hope and prayer is not a strategy. We need real information and our government's not providing it to us. And the news media is censoring what real information is out there. We have time for just one last question right here. Oh, my name is Donna Jackson. I'm the Director of Membership Development for Project 21 Black Leadership Network. Um, like you, I have a background in finance and accounting. I worked for Ernst & Young. I was Deputy Controller. Can you please, please get you and your colleagues to investigate all of this environmental justice money? It is not going into any black communities. You, I can talk to, I can get 50 black people on the phone right now and none of them are prioritizing climate change policies. And you know, the most egregious thing is they're using climate change policies to actually block, block black progress. Please, some oversight, it's going to climate change activists that actually bully black people if they stand up and say something about it. Killing black jobs. That's the only thing. So, so, I, I certainly don't disagree with you during the campaign. You know, again, I was anticipating we get the majority. I'd be chairman of the permanent subcommittee investigations, which would give me all kinds of power. Again, I've got all the oversight letters to, to act as a foundation for investigations, but same time, I'd also say, I mean, if we do win, if I do become chairman, I will be like a mosquito in a nudist colony. <laughs> a very target-rich environment. So what, what, what you really do need to do is go to the, right now, the committee chair in the House of the committee that has jurisdiction over that spending and, and make that appeal. And you've got Lauren right here, and you know, she can go talk to, again, I'm not sure which committee it would be. You know, and I'm quite honestly in the Senate, I'm not sure which committee that would be, but, but, that, but that, is the way it, that is the way it works. And I've always defended uh, people coming and talk to members of Congress. I never call them lobbyists. I say, don't, don't, don't refer yourself to lobbyists. There's nothing wrong with lobbying. What you're doing is you're educating. I mean, we're, we're talking about a $6 trillion plus entity, the largest financial entity in the world, okay? We, and by the way, nobody even knows how much we spend. When we're going over the omnibus, I was asking my colleagues, I was asking members of the press, you know how much we spent last year? None of them knew, because we never talk about it. I mean, think about it, the largest financial entity in the world, and like nobody knows how much it spends. But, you know, that's the task. So there's no member of Congress, there's no staff member of a member of Congress that can even begin to understand all the complexity of the federal government. That's why we need citizens like you to come into Washington, D.C., or go talk to your member of Congress in your district and educate them and let them know. You just educated me, just educated Lauren in terms of this issue, and I'm sure Lauren will uh, follow up on the House, and I'll certainly ask my staff about it as well. But again, I'm asking all of you my final point. If you're involved, stay involved. If you're not involved enough, get more involved. Get more involved. This is up to us, we the people. God bless all of you.